with us and still with us. We're going to study the scriptures together now a little bit. We're continuing our study actually this morning. We began a few weeks ago uh, on the Lord's Prayer. Certainly, I think finding, uh, well, rich with meaning regardless of the situation, times, and circumstance, but certainly uh, in our current situation and circumstance, perhaps a little extra mustard of meaning uh, here with the Lord's Prayer. And so we're just going phrase by phrase. And here's where we are today. We're using Matthew's version of the prayer. Here we are with this line, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. We want to explore this a little bit. And I want to just kind of begin kind of, you know, way back um, and kind of take a run at this. Um, We've talked a lot today about hope. And I just want to say that there's something I think essential to humanness about hope. It's almost like it's almost like the fuel that we run on, um, that being hope. You could almost say this um, to put a point on it. You could almost say that um, if you don't have hope, it almost doesn't matter what else you do have. Um, And conversely, I think we could really almost say, if you do have hope, no matter what else you don't have, you can be pretty confident that eventually you're going to pull through. We require hope. It's like the human spirit requires hope. Or maybe we could even say more pointedly than that, maybe it's even something physiological almost, that like in our bones, you know. Borrowing a phrase from Dr. Henry Cloud, adapting a phrase, you can almost say it like this. Our brains need three things to function. Oxygen, glucose, and hope. (laughs) Um, It's something essential to being a human. You don't have to be a Christian for that to be true. You don't have to be even a person of faith necessarily. But we just require hope. But then... It's also true, and certainly safe to say, that our hope and our, our, our tendency to, you know, our reliance upon hope, our fueledness by hope, is heightened further still as we grow in our knowledge of the one true God. He is a God of hope, continually revealing himself as a God of hope, always calling, always inviting, always leading his people further along towards something better. And this is throughout the story of the ancient people of God, right? Like from the very beginning, God's own self-introduction to Abraham, right? Remember that um, consequential encounter. I'm going to bless you. uh, And through you, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Blessed. What is blessed? Well, well, we don't, we don't know exactly at that point, but it's good, right? It's like God is going to offload some of his goodness onto Abraham and then through Abraham onto the whole world. That, that this, is, this is the fundamental story of the ancient people of God, and it is bursting with hope as its baseline. And then you fast forward the story forward, and of course, there's, there's the whole story with Moses and the burning bush and go to Pharaoh and let my people go and, and all that. And we talked about it last week. God reveals himself as I am 
a liberator. I am a freedom giver, an emancipator. And then on and on and on, again and again and again throughout the story, this God reveals himself as a God of hope. And then, simultaneously, isn't it true um, that over time, what we discover is, well, I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it kind of a gap, um, but what we, what we encounter over time in life is that while we have our hopes and dreams and even our well-placed hope in God, isn't it true way too often that life as it is actually persists just as it's always been, disappointment, heartbreak, hardship, pain. And so we have this, what I'm calling a gap. There's a, there's a gap between our hope and, again, our well-placed even hope in God on the one hand and, and the difficulty and oftentimes hardship and pain of life as it is. And so, I mean, plain and simple, everybody, we just have, we have this gap. And we're not the first, by the way, the, even the ancient people of God dealt with this very question. And they actually gave us um, a really a profound way of dealing with this gap. Um, it's not only true for us, but this gap is true for them. And so they gave us this way of dealing with it, of thinking about it, and even of talking about it. And, and they learned to talk about, to pray about, to write about. What we would call in English, the end. The, the Greek word for it, um, not to be fancy, but the Greek word is eschaton. And it's found throughout the scriptures, and here I mean the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which would have been the Bible for most of um, Jesus and his contemporaries. So they learned to talk about the end, the ancient prophets, that is. They learned to talk about the end, and they did not mean the end of the world, by the way. That's not what they, what they meant, not, not at all. When they talked about the end and wrote about the end and prayed about the end and prophesied about the end, what they meant was the end of this present age of pain and heartbreak, injustice, suffering, oppression, etc. And in that sense, when they talked about the end... They were talking about something that was equal parts, an ending, and a beginning. So when they talked about the eschaton or the end, they didn't mean that everything's coming to an end. They meant this current age of heartbreak, oppression, injustice, etc. is coming to an end. And at the end, a new age will begin. And they had a variety of ways of talking about this the end, and again, I'm, I'm going to say end, but I'm also going to mix, mix terms there because it, it's very important. When they talk about the end, they're also talking about a beginning. And so you could say they're talking about a, a transformation point for all of creation. And they had a variety of ways of talking about this, and you, you're familiar with some of this language. Sometimes it'd be um, talked about in, in, in terms of war and peace, um, like like the ancient prophets, and this is found both in Isaiah and in Micah, virtually a direct quotation, um, where these two 
ancient prophets see a day coming when, when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What's that? The, the, the end means this age of, of war and violence is going to transition into an age of peace. In this case, agricultural <laughs> images. Um, speaking of agricultural images, uh, the prophets also uh, talked about this, the end, in terms of farm life and, and animal life. Here's, here's one that may be familiar, Isaiah chapter 11. He says, the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. You may be familiar with that. The more familiar language, by the way, which is an adaptation of that prophecy from Isaiah 11, is the lion will lie down with the lamb, right? It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, that's a familiar phrase, but that's actually not found in the Bible. <laughs> that's an adaptation of that f- section from Isaiah 11, which I think made its way first into a song, um, Peace in the Valley. Elvis sang it so everybody knows it. Um, and so it became the familiar way, but, 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 so that, but that's where it comes from, from, from Isaiah 11. Um, another image used by the prophets to, to talk about the end is, is uh, the idea of a banquet or, or a feast. Here's an example from Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's a, it's a picture of a transformed reality. This is the end, which is equal parts ending and beginning. Another way that our ancient forefathers and mothers learn to talk about the end is, let's just say, in terms of monarchy. Um, the idea that what the end means is that, is that finally the world will become uh, the world in which God really is king. Um, the world will be transformed into a realm in, that looks like and feels like and is like a realm in which God really does fully and finally reign. And of course, the condensed version of that way of talking about the end is to use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Daniel 7, here's here's an example from one particular ancient prophet. Uh, It starts out, beginning with chapter 7, verse 2. He says, I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea and four great beasts coming up out of the sea different from one another. And then if you read that later, and you can do that for extra credit in the class, he goes into the description of what these four beasts are like. And they're, they're, I don't know, terrible and glorious and beastly, and they, they destroy lives, they devour, they... They tear apart um, humanity and, and conquer, conquer the world. Um, so Daniel sees this train of four different beasts, which we later learn, by the way, uh, symbolize 
kings, rulers, empires, worldly, worldly powers, empires of the world. I'll skip ahead. Verse 17 is where we get that from. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. Okay, so that's where we, we understand Daniel uh, is given some help with the interpretation. But backing up, after Daniel sees these four beasts kind of wreak havoc across the planet, uh, he sees what he describes as the Ancient of Days take his seat on his throne to judge history, to judge creation, takes his place as the judge. And then in verse 13, he says, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. That's from the New Revised Standard Version. More familiar language for some of you might be, I saw one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient, ancient one and was presented before him. To him, this is one like a human being. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion uh, that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. And then before we kind of step back from this a little bit, I'll read once again verse 17 and 18. This is where Daniel's getting some, some aid in interpreting this uh, vision. And, and the, the words are, as, as for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, verse 18, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And so from this prophetic vision and report of such from Daniel, we get two important words, phrases, um, one being son of man, or as it's translated here, the human one, and one being the kingdom of God. And let me just say briefly, there's much we could say about this vision from Daniel 7, but what I want to just point out is kind of the, the, the broad observation here. This is a vision uh, which is a study of contrasts, contrasts between, let's just call it... Um, earthly kingdoms, that is, earthly empires, and what Daniel sees as the heavenly kingdom when the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is given the kingdom. So, so you have the earthly contrasted with the heavenly. And then in the guts of Daniel's vision, there is a, 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 an important contrast between, let's call it the beastly kingdoms, the beastly empires of the earth, and the... the uh, the forever kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is personified by precisely by a human being. And we've talked about this before, and I think that a key to kind of putting flesh on the meaning here is when you put it in, con in contrast, Daniel is contrasting these earthly kingdoms which are personified by destructive beasts. And on the other hand, there's the kingdom of God, which is given to one like like a son of man, or like a human being, or we could say the humane kingdom, whereas the kingdoms of this world are inhumane and devour human life. There's something here called the kingdom of God, which stands in contrast, which is a humane kingdom. And then a third contrast here is that the kingdoms of this world, the earthly kingdoms, are transient. They come and go, right? There's four of them in succession. One rises up, 
It falls, another comes up, it falls, another comes up. And then there's this thing, the kingdom of God, which it says precisely is forever and ever. It is eternal. And then, and then a fourth contrast I just want to point out that each of these earthly kingdoms these, that are personified by these beasts, notice that these kingdoms, these empires, um, are brought about through destruction. The reason the first kingdom, earthly kingdom, becomes a kingdom is because of the destruction that it wreaks against humanity. And the second kingdom comes about as a kingdom through destruction. And the third comes about as a kingdom through the destruction, the destroying of human lives and human society. And again, in contrast, the forever kingdom, the kingdom of God comes not by conquest per se, but it comes as a gift. It is handed to the human one by the ancient of days and then handed by the human one to the holy ones, plural, as it spells out. These are, these are powerful contrasts between the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of earth, and the kingdom of God. This is very helpful from Daniel. It goes a long way and tells us a great deal about the kingdom of God. But, but, and this is important, this vision, as helpful as it is and as instructive as it is, still this vision leaves open many, and I'm going to highlight two, but it leaves open several questions that we could still ask about the kingdom of God. You see, in the end, these contrasts that I've pointed out that are drawn from Daniel 7, as helpful as they are, they are, in a manner of speaking, they are external descriptions of what the kingdom of God is like. We're not told yet about the internal quality of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like on the inside, so to speak? What is the actual content of the kingdom of God? What's its, what's, what is its mood? What's its feel? What's its MO, right? Like, like what, are, what are the guts of the kingdom of God? That question is left out of Daniel's vision so far. And that's fine. We don't fault him. You can't say everything in one prophetic vision. But it's still a legitimate question, and it's an important question. And then a second question that I think we could still ask is, how do we get there? In other words, how is it really that the kingdom of God will come about? Daniel has a beautiful picture of the Ancient of Days handing the kingdom to the human one and the human one. But, okay, so, but, but how really... How is it that the kingdom comes about? It's a very important question, and we're not the first to ask these questions, by the way. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to try to, to take a few steps toward answering those questions. But before we do, let me just point out here at the outset um, that <laughs> as Americans, um, I'll just say it this way, <laughs> as Americans, we have... Our baseline, it is, I would say, we have an awkward relationship with this metaphor, <laughs> kingdom, right? Like, like as Americans, our history, right? We, we exist because we rebelled against a kingdom, <laughs> a king and his, and his kingdom, right? So, so our baseline in terms of American culture, I'm just saying, our baseline is that 
the notion, the idea of king and kingdom rubs us the wrong way. Maybe it sounds heavy-handed. Maybe it sounds, you know, whatever. Um, but, but that's just kind of facing I, cultural, historical reality for us as Americans. And so my question is, and I'm not going to try to answer this question, but I just want to ask you to hold this question in mind. What do we do with that sort of natural baseline, ingrained cultural sense of resistance to the idea of kingdom, right? Like, like when, I hear, when I hear kingdom and I'm thinking George Washington, American, you know, et cetera, um, there's something about the idea of a kingdom that in terms of my cultural rootedness is objectionable, right? And so what do I do with that? Like, how do I respond to that internally? Like, how do I deal with that fingers, fingernails on a chalkboard kind of thing? Um, and I just want to say, for me, for my own observation, um, my sense is that what we've done, especially as Americans, in response to this tension, this natural resistance to kingdom, my sense is that the way we've tried to address that tension is that we have tended to overly abstract the idea of kingdom of God in order to make it palatable to our American sensibilities. And we've essentially transformed the idea of kingdom of God into this abstract, spiritual, pixie dust kind of thing. Um, and essentially, I think, I want to suggest, and you test this in your own observation, not just of those other people, but even in your own heart. Um, and I think, as a result, kind of robbed this metaphor of, of some of its muscle. So, so if, as Americans, we're kind of put offish by this metaphor, then, then why should we retain it? And I am arguing that, that, that we should, that we ought to retain this metaphor and we even ought to revitalize its, its meaning. Um, and I want to give you two, two initial reasons for keeping the metaphor and even, and even um, uh, uh, rubbing off some of the tarnish uh, that may have caked over it. Um, and one reason is that to describe the end as kingdom... Um, it signals the idea that God's kingdom stands in opposition to earthly kingdoms, um, human kingdoms, normal kingdoms. We need the term precisely because the term borrows from how we humans have arranged the world. And so to describe God's program as a kingdom is a, it, it's a continual reminder that God has an alternate program for organizing the world. Now, this is true for us. I mean, we get it, 21st century. We understand this. But this is, don't you know, ever more true for Jesus in first century Palestine. Right? Because they live in a kingdom. And it's the kingdom of Caesar. It's the kingdom of Rome. And so to invoke kingdom of God is obviously, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a contra, it's a contra Caesar 
way of communicating. It's a, it's a contra Rome. It's, it's a statement of resistance, right? Um, and so, and so the, 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 the phrase is, is meaningful in that sense, and, and my hope is that we can regain some of that meaning. Um, and then secondly, and maybe this is a different way of saying the same thing, but the term kingdom, to describe God's program as a kingdom, um, it reminds us that, in fact, uh, God's program is more than internal private religion. And this is, and you know this as well as I do, but this has become very popular, very common in our modern Western sensibilities. To think of what it means to be a Christ follower in terms of internal private religion. It's a matter of personal private faith. But, but again, this, this, this way of speaking about God's program in terms of kingdom, it, it reminds us that no, 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 no. God's, God's agenda, his program is actually, I mean, it is personal and private. It is that. But it goes way beyond that. It's actually an alternative normal that our Heavenly Father has in mind. So, so there's, there's a couple of general observations. And the next thing I want to say before we get into the particulars is um, the language itself. The, the English word kingdom, in the, when we're talking about in the Old Testament, the English word kingdom is a translation of the Hebrew word malkut. Um, and this word, many scholars and many scholars uh, urge upon us that this Hebrew word malkut, it, it emphasizes process and style over person or region of control, right? It's not, so, so malkut does refer to the king as a person and the, and the geographic boundaries of a kingdom. It is. But, but, but more so, the word itself leans into the style of a kingdom or the, the process, the texture and feel. And this is true even in the Greek. Um, the English word kingdom translates to Greek word basileia. It's a feminine noun. And again, even with basileia, it, it communicates a style, a feel, a, a tone and tenor of the realm, right? So, so I want to say, um, and this is, I think, going to help as we take the next steps here this morning. So when you read or hear or sing the phrase kingdom of God, you're on solid ground, actually, if, if you retranslate that in your mind to something like the reigning of God or the reign of God, meaning a, a, way, to, a way to point yourself in the direction of, of like, I, like we were saying before, the style, the mode, the tenor and tone of reality as reality, uh, well, is, could be, would be, should be, will be, when God is fully king. So reality shaped by the heart and character and personality of God, the reign of God. That's a, that's a very good, you're on solid ground if you translate it that way. So again, all that's helpful. We're taking steps, but still... Our, at least our two questions are still, are still open. What, 
what still is the, what really is the tone and texture, the content of the kingdom of God? And how do we get there? How do we get from here to there? Here being this age to there, that age, if you want to even put it in those terms. These are important questions. History, of course, moves on for the ancient people of God. And through time, the prophets continue to prophesy. And we come upon one that's worth uh, stopping off and, and taking an appreciation of uh, from Jeremiah 23. And this is one example of really kind of a refrain that occurs uh, uh, more than once in, in the prophets. But you'll get the idea. Jeremiah 23, this is uh, from verse 5. He says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And again, this is one example, but it happens a lot. And as a result, this image becomes quite popular and common among the ancient people of God, certainly among Jesus' own contemporaries. And the basic idea was basically this. Someday, God is going to send us a new David. That became the very popular, very common expectation. And that, of course, is loaded with implications, right? Especially if you fast forward and you get to Jesus' day, first century Palestine, Rome, Caesar, all of that. And here we are, most people in the culture are expecting a new David. Think about it. David was the king of Israel during its all-time high point, right? Israel was the superpower of the world when David was king. And David, in particular, was like both the general and the commander-in-chief of the world's baddest army right? Um, and David precisely conquered and overthrew the Philistines, for one, with Israel's, as the leader of Israel's mighty army. And so, think about it, for first century Israel to imagine and to hope for a new David, well, clearly that would mean that God is going to send us a new general and commander-in-chief who will lead us to overthrow contemporary oppressors, that being namely Caesar and Rome. And looking ahead a little bit, this points to an obvious problem, right? Um, the first Christians believe that, in fact, Jesus was the one that Isaiah had foretold and that Jeremiah had foretold. The, the first Christians believed, in fact, that Jesus really was the promised new David. And the reason that's a problem is because obviously Jesus was no military leader. <laughs> uh, to say the obvious, turn the other cheek and love your enemies is not exactly a military strategy. <laughs> and so the question then, when Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come. What does he have in mind? What does Jesus mean? 
when he talks about the kingdom of God. What, what does Jesus invite us to imagine when we think about, pray about, talk about, and live into the kingdom of God or live toward, let's say, the kingdom of God? What is it that Jesus has in mind and what is it that Jesus is inviting us into? This morning, I want to use uh, Jesus and John the Baptist to, I think, highlight ultimately what we're trying to get to here is Jesus' own understanding of the kingdom of God. And I want to use Jesus and John the Baptist to bring out, I think, some of the, um, well, to say that Jesus' perspective on the kingdom of God was unique uh, is certainly true, but I think an understatement. So this is not trying to pit Jesus and John against one another at all, but it is to show their differences in perspective. Clearly, Jesus and John the Baptist have much in common, uh, but they are not in lockstep, as you're going to see. Uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, in the end, were not two peas in a pod. They are partners in that they both have kingdom of God as their agenda, cousins. We could even say that um, I would be fine if someone were to say John the Baptist was probably Jesus' mentor in a way um, of speaking. Um, so lots in common, but beyond that, they actually have very different visions of what kingdom of God actually means. And I'll start kind of in the middle of their shared story. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John the Baptist is actually thrown in jail right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry. So John the Baptist really never saw Jesus do his thing in terms of his public ministry. Uh, and so it, as Luke tells the story, John is thrown into prison early on in Jesus, uh, well, right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry. And then quite some time passes while John is still in jail. And then we come to this episode uh, as recorded in Luke chapter 7. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things, that is the things that Jesus had been saying and doing, to him, to John the Baptist who is in prison. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? <laughs> when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? And Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And so he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, several angles here, but let me just kind of say it broadly enough to kind of get it started. John is revealing something to us here that's very important, and I'll say it this way. Jesus is not meeting John's expectations, right? Um, 
I'll say a little bit further than that. John's expectations of here comes the kingdom. That's what John had announced. The kingdom has drawn near. John's expectations of the arrival of the kingdom does not include being thrown in jail. (laughs) John's kingdom expectation is that we overthrow the pagans, not be thrown into the dungeons of the pagans. That's what John is revealing to us here in this moment. Hey, apparently, you know, I'm starting to think, I'm starting to think you might not be the one that I thought you were. And what is it about John's experience that has, that has brought him to that questioning, that wondering? One thing has changed for John. He was prior, he was not in jail, and now he is in jail. And because he is in jail, he's thinking, wait a minute, maybe this is not the one who's bringing the kingdom. Why is that? Because when kingdom comes, John the Baptist, God's man, does not find himself in jail. It's the opposite. We're supposed to be overthrowing the pagans, right? So, Jesus is not meeting John's expectations, namely, John's expectation is that when the kingdom comes, the pagans no longer have control of our lives. That's essentially what John is revealing. And so how does Jesus respond to this? I love it. He says, don't be offended by me. John, guess what? This is actually what the actual kingdom of God looks like. Let me paraphrase this way. Jesus' response to his bewildered former mentor. Uh, if, if this is what you were expecting, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, good news is preached to the poor. If this is what you're expecting when the kingdom arrives, then good for you. If this is not what you were expecting then make the adjustment and get with the program is essentially what Jesus is saying. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so I begin with this window into the shared story between Jesus and John the Baptist because it starts to bring out the difference in perspective between John and Jesus on kingdom. And so now what I want to do is look at three particular questions about kingdom where we see more differences actually between, or maybe differences in emphasis, there's a better way to say it, between Jesus and John. And the first question involves the when of the kingdom of God. When, when will the kingdom of God arrive? And for John, the message is the kingdom is about to happen. It's very close. It's imminent. Um, It's going to happen soon, right? And this Matthew chapter 3, here's an example. This is John speaking. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's like right here. It's just just about to come. That's, That's John's sense of the wind. But when you look at Jesus, when you look at the collection of what Jesus has to say about the kingdom, you see something different in Jesus' teaching, in Jesus' thinking about the kingdom. And to put a point on it, for Jesus, the kingdom is already here. Look at this, Luke 17. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, 
The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Right now, the kingdom of God is among you. Nobody, nobody talked that way. Nobody talked that way prior to Jesus. For the prophets, it was always, the day's going to come. It's going to come. The end is going to come. The end is going to come. The transition point is going to come. But Jesus brings a whole new thought. The kingdom is among you right now, right here. Again, Luke 11. Context here, but we'll just pick it up. Jesus says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And certainly it is true that Jesus cast out demons. So there again, this is another example of Jesus saying, the kingdom of God has come to you. It is here. The kingdom is here. So for John, the kingdom is very close, very near, imminent even, but not here yet. It's going to come. For Jesus, the kingdom is here. It's among you. This is profound. And then a second question, I've got it summarized as the who, but what I'm really saying is, um, you know, uh, who is it that's going to bring the kingdom? And again, just by way of pointing out contrast, for John, the kingdom comes by divine intervention. Like for John, the kingdom is going to come. It's soon. It's right on the cusp. And it's going to come by divine intervention. The kingdom's going to come because God's going to do it, right? And this is throughout John's rhetoric. But here's again from Matthew 3, one example. He says, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So obviously a, uh, a metaphorical picture, but what John is envisioning is that this is the kingdom is going to come as by the doing of God. And then he's got in that same context uh, that uh, he's got this idea of, uh, of the winnowing fork in his hands and he's going to throw up the wheat and the chaff into the wind and the chaff is going to be blown into the fire and burn and the wheat's going to fall to the ground. So he's got all this, he's got all this idea that the kingdom is going to come because God is going to act and he's going to intervene. What about Jesus? Do we see any difference in Jesus? Oh, yeah. For Jesus, again and again and again, for Jesus, the kingdom comes by human collaboration with God. And this, again, is an enormously important distinction. In fact, in fact every time when you encounter Jesus speaking of entering the kingdom, of someone entering the kingdom, what Jesus is talking about there is someone participating with God, collaborating with God in the living into or living out the kingdom of God. Luke 18. Truly, I, this is one example. Truly, I tell you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. What's he talking about? He's talking about Entering the kingdom of God by receiving the king, kingdom of God as God's right here. He's already said the kingdom is among you. Right here, right now, alternative reality. Receive that kingdom and enter into it. See, the language there, when Jesus talks about entering the kingdom, he's not talking about something that happens like going to heaven when you die. He's talking about, we would even say it that way in English on occasionally, you know, like, um, like maybe imagine, ah, Siri, stop. Um, like imagine, 
Imagine a, a new year comes along, the new year holiday, right? And, you know, year after year, you make your resolutions and, and you have that. But, but this particular year comes around and you're just intense about it. I've got, I've got a, a, a new attitude. I've got new goals. I've got new resolutions. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm top to bottom. I'm changing my motivation. I'm changing whatever. You, in that situation, you might even speak this way. You might say, you know what? I'm just entering into a whole new phase. Or I'm just entering into a whole new me, right? What you mean by that is you are adopting, adapting a new way of seeing, a new way of being, a new way of living. That's what Jesus means when he talks about entering into the kingdom of God. It is a right here, right now embracing of God's alternative reality, entering the kingdom. It is this collaborative deal. The second thing that I would point to in support of kind of Jesus' understanding of kingdom coming through this collaborative participation with God, just think about the story of Jesus' ministry as you already know it, right? Jesus, well, first of all, Jesus went to the people, right? Imagine, imagine the difference if Jesus had just kind of set up shop somewhere in Galilee and said, okay, this is the Jesus school. And if anybody wants to learn the Jesus thing, they come to my school and I teach and I do. No, that's not what Jesus did. He went to people where people were. Um, but then secondly, think about this. Jesus sent his disciples out to do exactly what he had done. Go and heal the sick, bring good news to the poor, share meals with the outcasts. You go do what I've been doing. What does, that, what does that say? Just even that practice on Jesus' part points us toward Jesus' understanding that God's kingdom agenda, his kingdom program, comes about in the world through human collaboration with the divine. And again, I would point you to the, the scene that's recorded by Luke in the beginning of the book of Acts. When the disciples ask him, this is after, after crucifixion, after resurrection. The disciples ask Jesus, say, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, and Jesus' answer is, you know, it's not, it's, not for, it's not for you to know the, the times and the dates and all that stuff, but here's the thing. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So they asked Jesus a kingdom question, and, and the disciples had a, a, um, uh, a perspective of, let's call it divine intervention, right? Like they're looking at Jesus. Okay, so is this the time when you are going to restore? Now they're looking at Jesus as the divine. Are you, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're asking a question that has this notion of divine intervention at bottom within the question. And notice Jesus' answer. His answer to them has at bottom human collaboration with the divine. You are going to be my witnesses. Everybody, this is profound. This is enormous. And so the who of the kingdom is divine human, human collaboration with the divine. And then, and then thirdly, I've got on your outline the how question, and that is, how is the kingdom going to come about? If the world is going to be transformed from what it is now 
to this thing called kingdom of God, whether you put it in, in terms of a banquet, put it in terms of animal life, whatever terms you want to put it, put it into, war and peace. How is that change going to come about? Well, without belaboring the point, for John, it's going to come about through coercive means, by means of power, which is why John had a problem with himself being thrown in jail. This is not kingdom. <laughs> kingdom is we're going to overthrow the pagans. And John wasn't alone in that. This is apparently, according to scholarship, we could almost say virtually universal in Jesus' day. Everybody assumed when Messiah comes, Messiah's going to be new David. David's commander-in-chief. He's general. That's what's next, right? And, and we know uh, historically, we know the most about the party of the zealots, which were not bad guys. They were faithful guys that loved God. And the reason they were zealots is because that's their view of how it was that John, that God was going to bring the kingdom through that kind of conquest deal. Um, and again, they weren't bad guys and they weren't even unusual, that unusual. They had a more, um, perhaps a more overt uh, uh, application, but the assumptions that they were operating from were shared, apparently, quite broadly among first century Jewish people. So for John, he, by all accounts, John shared this notion that the kingdom is going to come about through coercive means, perhaps even violent means. But for Jesus, the kingdom comes through nonviolent means. And this is obvious throughout Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies, he says, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In an agricultural society, sending rain is an act of mercy, a blessing. Luke 6, same idea. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. So Jesus' ethic, his kingdom-bringing agenda, involves this idea, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. And, and Jesus roots this ethic in the very nature and personality of God. So Jesus gives his kingdom-bringing agenda. The Sermon on the Mount, you could think of as a very good sort of um, the, the charter and constitution of the kingdom of God on earth. And right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this whole thing of love your enemies, turn the other cheek, etc. But maybe um, the most vivid and pointed uh, window into this in the heart and mind and vision of Jesus with regard to the nature, the how of the kingdom actually comes from John's account of the arrest and quote-unquote trial of Jesus prior to his crucifixion recorded in John chapter 18 in Jesus' conversation with Pilate. And Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. Now, um, this is New Revised Standard. 
version, this is often translated, my kingdom is not of this world. And this phrase gets wildly misunderstood. And it gets turned into this idea that maybe Jesus is saying something that his kingdom is not for this world. My kingdom is not worldly. My kingdom is someday way off over the rainbow in some disembodied ethereal deal. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Um, In fact, he's saying the opposite of that. My kingdom, he says, is not from this world. And then he clarifies the misunderstanding if we would just keep reading, even even if the preposition there uh, is mistranslated as of this world. Um, If you just keep going, you get the idea of what he's saying. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers, listen to this, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. What's he saying? My kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is from another place. And what is the precise contrasting element that Jesus gives to Pilate that distinguishes Jesus' kingdom from a worldly kingdom? Fighting. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, we'd be fighting. Right now, my followers would be fighting to bust me out of here. But my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is a kingdom of heaven anchored in the heart of God. And that's why my followers aren't fighting. (laughs) So for John and virtually everyone else, the kingdom comes by coercive means up to and including violence. But for Jesus, again and again and again, the how of the kingdom is through nonviolent means. It's just there, everybody. It's just there. And it's unavoidable. And so on all three of these counts, um, the when, the who, and the how. On all three counts, uh, the vision of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God is a full-blown paradigm shift from the conventional understanding held by his contemporaries. Um, Most people in Jesus' day thought like John the Baptist about the kingdom. God's kingdom will someday dawn upon us. Um, God himself will bring about God's kingdom. And the world will only be transformed through some sort of divine coercion, maybe even including violent coercion. Everybody thought that way. And yet Jesus gives us what can, I think, rightly be called a total paradigm shift in thinking. And so my prayer today, and I realize that leaves lots of questions still out there. But my prayer today, and I don't mean this to sound, I mean, don't take it the wrong way, but, but my prayer today is that we would challenge ourselves to, to take the steps to join with Jesus about our understanding of what the kingdom actually is. The kingdom's here. It's among us. The kingdom comes and keeps on coming through human collaboration with the divine right here and right now. 
and the kingdom comes through nonviolent means. You actually don't create peace through violence. You only create a gap between episodes of violence. And we may not enjoy acknowledging that, but that's the story of human history. All that our violence has brought us is an occasional gap between episodes of violence. And yet, the story of Jesus, the program of Jesus, is that the kingdom comes through nonviolent means. See, I would submit that most Christians today have actually regressed back from the vision of Jesus and back to a paradigm more like John the Baptist. That's the reason I've used him as an example for you today. Because when I look at John the Baptist's perspective based on these contrasts, and I may have overstated the contrast here and there, but that's kind of part of the deal. Um, when I look at John's perspective, the kingdom's not here, but it's going to come someday soon. The kingdom's going to come because God's going to do something. And when God does something, it's probably going to be coercive up to and including violence. Most Christians today think that way, more or less. And yet when you look at Jesus' perspective on those three particular elements, in fact, the kingdom is already here, Jesus says. In fact, the kingdom comes and keeps on coming through human beings collaborating with the program of God here and now. And in fact, the kingdom comes through living out the agenda as taught by Jesus, that is, nonviolent resistance to the status quo. My prayer today, when I, when I observe that, it's startling to me. I mean, just to be frank, it, that's startling to me. And so my hope today is that, well, maybe you would begin as startled with me but then let's take the steps and get back to Jesus' perspective on the kingdom as already among us, as stimulated by our collaboration with God, and as coming about through nonviolent means. Um, so, Mother's Day. And kingdom. I want to close this morning um, I'm thinking of one mother in particular who I think is probably in our shared consciousness these days. The mother of this young man who was murdered in the street a few weeks ago. This mother, today, she's not, she's not thinking in terms of the kingdom of God. She's not thinking in terms of what some old Jewish prophet said thousands of years ago. She's probably not even thinking about some abstract idea like justice. She just wants her son back. It's about that simple. And her heart is broken. 
the fact is, when Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. He's inviting us to pray, to imagine, to stomp our feet, and to get on with the program of becoming a people where that just doesn't happen in our world. Where human beings don't kill one another. That's the program. That's the agenda. And everybody, when we examine a scene like this that's unfolded right under our noses, there's something in me and there's something in you that I'll just say for me, I think it's probably true for you too. I want to I I hear that story, and I've seen the video. Many of you have as well, I'm sure. I want to look at all that and say, that's just not who we are. But the fact of the matter is, everybody, that is who we are. to examine this episode that happened right under our noses is to look in a mirror. And it's in no small part because we've, we've gone to sleep with a switch and we've pushed off the kingdom of God into some future, forever, disembodied, immaterial deal. But for now, this is just the way the world is and we've gotten way too stinking comfortable with it. Jesus says, no, it's here. It's here. And we've shoved off the kingdom agenda onto God and say, God, when are you going to do something? When are you going to show up and bring your kingdom? And Jesus has been saying all along, the kingdom is right here, ready for you to enter in. Just do it. Just be the kingdom. And then I know I've leaned into the theme of violence and nonviolence. And I know that for some people, it makes us uncomfortable. Because we just don't get it, man. When we, when we, when we hear the teaching of Jesus, it's like we try to hear, but we go, love your enemies. That's just not practical, <laughs> you know. We can't do that. <laughs> I heard one guy say, It may be true that our own experience reveals that love your enemies is impractical as an ethic, but that doesn't mean we abandon it. He said, take monogamy (laughs) as a parallel. Um, It's just there. Love your enemies is who we're called to be. And my prayer is, is that to the extent that we have fallen asleep and grown numb, numb to the level of violence that happens in our culture, in our relationships, in the workplace, in our households, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to wake up and to be kingdom people.
Let's pray.